Now, we're going to use some um, um, scriptures out of Hebrews 4, but we'll also be looking at some things that um, uh, in chapter 3 that kind of lead up to what's being said in chapter 4. Uh, you know as well as I do that um, that the writers, none of the writers of the, the scripture, the letters that are written to the church wrote in chapters and verses. Those uh, chapters and verse divisions and distinctions were made by the translators uh, for reference sake and, and uh, to help us uh, to, um, uh, to identify certain scriptures, certain topics and, and so forth. And, uh, and I thank the King James translators, translators for, for the best part, did a marvelous job for us. But um, uh, chapter 4... Uh, the the subject of chapter 4 and the things that uh, Paul, I believe Paul was the writer of the book of Hebrews, the author of the book, but whoever it was was inspired by the Holy Ghost is continuing, uh, the thought continues from chapter 3. And uh, chapter 3 he talks about, starts talking about uh, things that the Jews know about in their history. Now Paul didn't say anything about this to the Gentile churches because they don't have the same history. The Gentiles didn't have the history of the Jews. But when he writes to the Jews, he writes some, some things specific to them and is able to draw some things from the Old Testament that, uh, that wouldn't make sense to a Gentile group of believers. And so when he starts talking in, um, uh, about Jewish history in, um, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Now the time that he's talking about is the, the, uh, he's referring to the, the time after Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. You remember the mighty hand of God and the display of God's power by parting the Red Sea. And um, children of Israel went across on dry land and uh, or dry ground. And then when Pharaoh and his armies chased in after them, then the waters came back and destroyed the greatest army on the face of the earth without ever firing a shot, so to speak, although they didn't have shots. Um, nobody, you know, shot an arrow. Nobody did anything. Nobody had to fight. The greatest army that everybody, every nation on the face of the earth feared was destroyed by the hand of God, and nobody even had to lift a finger. You know, I think we make a mistake sometimes trying to figure out and thinking too hard about it. Well, how is this going to happen? We may be facing something in our situation, and we say, well, yeah, God said that he'd see me through. He said he'd deliver us. But how in the world is that going to take place? Listen, God's got so many how in the world to, to, to operate from and to choose from that, that it's, it's hardly even worth us trying to spend any time figuring it out. The Bible talks about one time where he made a flood in the, in the middle of the desert. He caused a tidal wave to happen in the middle of the desert. Now, how does that take place? Well, it can't except God. So anyway, the children of Israel come to the, the end of the promised land, the edge of the promised land. This is the land that God told Moses to tell them about before they ever left Egypt. God has heard your cry. He's going to deliver you from the bondage of Egypt. He's going to lead you to uh, uh, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It'll be a great land. It'll be watered by the rains of heaven. All these good things are are, um, a part of the promised land. And the children of Israel come some two years, maybe two and a half years after they leave Egypt. During that interim period of time, they've received the law of Moses. They encamp for uh, some period of time while uh, Moses was up in the mountain getting the ten commandments and the other laws and talking to God face to face and so forth. And so after about two and a half years of, um, uh, from the time they've been led out of the bondage in Egypt, now they come to the edge of the promised land and they send 12 spies in there. And 10 of those spies came back and they said, oh boy, this is everything God said it was, but he didn't tell us about the people that lived in there. There are enemies in there. There are giants in the land. Boy, they've got strong military uh, forces, and, and they're stronger than us, and, and they've got big cities, and these cities have big walls around them, and there is just no way we can do it. 
Well, folks, can I ask you a question? Why in the world didn't one of those ten guys step up and say, well, wait a minute, this looks too big, but didn't Egypt look too big too? What is it about certain circumstances and certain adversities that make some people go brain dead when it comes to God? You're going to think something. Why do people turn off the possibilities of God by seeing or when they see the size of their problem? Folks, the size of your problem is designed by the devil to make you forget God. You have to make a choice not to let that happen. Two of those 12 spies, Caleb and Joshua, saw the same things that the other 10 did. Exactly the same thing. They saw the same giants. They saw the same military forces, military strength. They saw the same cities. They saw the same walls. They saw the same fruit. They saw the same everything. And two of them came back with a different report, what the Bible calls a different report than the ten. The ten brought back an evil report. Two brought back a good report. Now, what was the difference in the ten and the two? The ten said, we can't do it because the problem's too big. We're not big enough for the tasks. Well, I would submit to you folks that they should have figured that out before they ever went into the land. This is not about us. It wasn't about us when it came to Egypt. We didn't defeat Egypt. God did. Two of them that came back and brought a good report said, we're well, well able to do that, well able to take the land because God is on our side. God said that it's ours. But you know the end of the story how that the children of Israel believe the majority report, which is usually wrong. The majority report said we can't do it. So Israel lifted up their voice and cried unto God. Now the Bible talks about that and refers to that. The Holy Spirit prompted Paul, or the writer of the book of Hebrews, prompted this author to say that that was the day of provocation. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works for 40 years. In other words, this was the beginning of their detour from God's plan and purpose and will for their lives. And most of everybody of that generation, everybody from age 20 and up, died in the wilderness during those 40 years. That one event detoured everything about what God planned for them and intended for them and willed for their lives. Now, whose fault was it that they spend the time in the wilderness? Whose fault was it that the plan of God was detoured in their lives? Was it God's fault? No. Because the two guys of that generation, Caleb and Joshua, that said we're well able to do it, were the only two over age 20 that went into the promised land 40 years later. So you can't say that it was God's fault because the two that stuck with him saw the promised land. Whose fault was it then? It was their fault because of their refusal to accept the truth of God's word. Well, folks, if that's the principle and if that's the way that it works, how is it that the modern day church blames God for the things, the problems that they're encountering? How come it is that the things like, well, this is evening school, it's talking about sickness. How is it that the modern day church blames God for sickness when the Bible clearly says Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses at the same time that he paid the price for your sins? It's the same thing. Healing is the promised land that the Old Testament gives us an example of. Healing is your promised land. And what you do with the word of God, with what God said about what belongs to you, has everything to do with whether or not you're going to enter into your promised land. Has everything to do with whether or not you're going to enter into your, your healing. It has nothing to do with the will of God. God has made his will known. It's up to you and me. It's not up to God. Well, back to the story. Here is talking about how the children of Israel provoked God. It says, here is the, um, well, let's just, we, I think we quoted down through about verse 9. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 10 of chapter 3. 
It says, wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, here's God speaking. They do always err in their heart and have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, rest in their application or in their situation had to do with the promised land. So I swear they would not enter into the promised land. But notice that Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to call it rest. In other words, the promised land is a place where you cease from your works. Doesn't mean there aren't enemies because there were enemies in the promised land, enemies that had to be defeated. But it's the place where you cease from your works. It's the place where you cease from looking at how big you are compared to your problem and recognize that it's how big God is compared to the problem. That's what the Bible calls rest. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart. Notice it's a spiritual issue. He's going to define what that spiritual error was. And they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. That was their promised land. Verse 12. Now here's Paul talking to us. That was what Paul was quoting from the Old Testament that God said about Israel back then. Now he's going to tell what the Holy Ghost is saying about how it applies to us. The Jews, because they knew the the history behind it. The Gentiles, because Jesus has made the way open, the door open for the Jews and the Gentiles. So what does that mean to us? It means very simply this in verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. What was the error of their heart? Unbelief. They refused to accept what God said about the promised land being theirs. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, we could get into a discussion about what's more evil and and less evil. Is lying more evil than stealing? Is stealing more evil than cheating? We could have all kinds of discussion. A lot of people would get stuck on sexual sins and say, well, that's the most evil of all. But notice what God called evil. God said that an evil heart, that the evil heart is unbelief, is an unbelieving heart. In other words, unbelief is evil. Unbelief is evil. Refusing to accept what God said about your promised land is evil. I didn't say the people were evil. Notice God didn't call the people evil. He said they had an evil heart of unbelief. In other words, they made a choice. They made a choice, and that choice was to reject God. To reject what God said about the promised land because of what they saw. And most of them didn't even see it. Only 10 of them saw it. Well, 12 of them total, but 10 of them came back with the report saying it's too big. We can't do it. Only 10 people saw what they thought were giants, what they thought were two big cities with two big walls. Only 10 people saw it and everybody else accepted what they said and rejected what God said, who had already shown himself strong. He's shown himself in the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea for them, drowning Egypt in the Red Sea when they followed after. They've seen him in a pillar of fire. They've seen him in a pillar of cloud. They've seen God over and over again. He did the 10 plagues before they ever left Egypt. They've seen God's power. They've seen God display himself. Yet they believed 10 people. And what they said about the promised land. Oh, no, we can't do it. Numbers chapter 14 says, And all the congregation lifted up their voice to God and wept that night. Now, chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, there's nothing wrong with the translation. But from the original Greek... There's a lot that's missing. For example, this word come short means to be a day late. 
Now, how in the world does that apply to us? Well, it applies to us because of Jewish history. Because if you go back and look at the story that we were talking about, the day of propagation, when the, ten, the 12 spies came back and 10 of them said we can't do it, two of them said we can. Chapter 14 of Numbers says all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried to God that night. But then it goes on a few verses later. Caleb and Joshua stand up and they say, don't rebel against God. It's not too late. Turn around. We can do this. God said we can do this. But the children of Israel took up stones and they said, no, we're going to stone you. We can't do it. It's too big for us to do. And God shows up and God speaks and says, this is what I'm going to do. He stands in between Moses and Caleb and Joshua and the other uh, the other people, all the rest of the congregation. Three people standing up for God out of millions. Three people. I don't know what you think about that, but if it ever comes to that in my life, I want to be one of those three people. I'm not afraid of being one of those three people. I want the opportunity to be one of those three people. Now, I used to be afraid to be in a situation like that. Man, all your friends are on the other side. And what are they going to say about you? Well, if they're going to talk about you at all, it's probably not going to be good. So who cares about trying to please them? Most of the time, they're not going to talk about you either way. Anyway, it says God steps in. God appears and makes a separation between the people. He shows his power to push the people back, push the congregation back. And God says, I'm establishing an everlasting principle. It's an unchanging law. King James says an oracle. What that literally means is it's an eternal law. It'll never change. It won't just change while the earth is, uh, this earth exists. It'll never change forever throughout eternity. And what is that unchanging law? What is that eternal law of God that he established? He says, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Now, what did they say? They said, we can't take the promised land. They said it would be better for us to have died in Egypt. And they said, oh, if we could only just die in the wilderness instead of having to go try to take a land that we can't take. Well, what did they get? They got exactly what they said. They died in the wilderness. And that's the unchanging law that God establishes. Really, it had been established before then, but he identifies it and decrees it. He said, this is the unchanging law. Well, Moses tells the people this. Moses says, that's it. You guys have messed up. Your opportunity is done. You know what Israel did? Israel then turned around when they realized, wait a minute, God just said we're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness and we're all going to die in the wilderness. Then they made an about face. They said, oh, we repent. We're ready to believe God now. We're ready to trust God now. And Moses says, doesn't matter, you're too late. But the next morning they get up and they try to cross the Jordan River and they go out against the enemy and are soundly defeated. Moses tells them, you're wasting your time, don't go. Before they went out to battle, he said, don't go. God's not with you. It's not going to work. The point is this. The Jews know that a part of their history is that Israel trying to turn, tried to turn this around after God declared what was going to happen to them because of their unbelief. But they were one day late from realizing the plan of God in their lives. That's what Hebrews 4.1 means. It says, let us therefore fear. Let's don't follow their example. Let's don't have the evil heart of unbelief that they did. Let us therefore fear. Lest a promise being left us. Now he's talking about our promises, not their promises. Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. In other words, the will of God for your life. Any of you should seem to be a day late. In other words, believe God when you're facing your opportunities or facing your adversities, facing your situations. For unto us, verse 2, for unto us was the gospel preached. 
as well as unto them. They knew what God said. They knew what God's will was concerning the promised land. God had made that very plain. He said, I've prepared you a land. I'm leading you to a land that flows with milk and honey, and the land is yours. He told them from the beginning the land was theirs. He didn't focus on how big the people were that were in there. He didn't talk about the cities that they'd have to conquer. He didn't talk about the size of the walls surrounding the cities. He didn't tell them any of that stuff. Well, why didn't he tell them? Because he assumed, I guess, that they would know that there'd be somebody taking care of the land and making it a land of milk and honey until they got there. You know, it's an amazing thing how so often we want God to talk to us about our enemies. And he never will. Oh, but Lord, look at what the enemy's doing. He'll never talk to you about what the enemy's doing. At least he never does with me. But Lord, don't you see what the devil's doing? Who cares? What did God say? It's not about what the devil's doing. It's about what has God promised. The promised land for Israel wasn't about how big the cities were that had the walls around them. It wasn't about how strong the armies were of the enemies. It wasn't about the giants. It wasn't about any of that kind of stuff. It was about what did God say? And that's the choice that they made in error. They said God's promise doesn't match up with the size of the problem. Now, the whole thing, the whole reason that the Holy Ghost is bringing this, this uh, example up, this historical event up, is to, for us to learn from it. And here's what he says. He said, let us therefore fear. In other words, be very, very careful that you don't follow and duplicate their mistake. Don't let any promise of God concerning his will for your life. This is healing school, so we'll talk about healing. Don't let the promise of healing escape you by following their example of speaking against what God said just because of how things look. Do you realize that what God is saying is it doesn't matter how things look? But do you realize everything about the medical community is about how it looks? Now, thank God for good doctors. Thank God for the good that doctors can do. I I appreciate good doctors. I appreciate good Christian doctors. I appreciate doctors that realize that they're not God. I appreciate doctors that will not only treat you, but will pray for you. We've got some of those doctors in our church. But, folks, if you focus just on what the doctor says, then the only thing you're ever going to look at is how it looks. And that's the mistake that Israel made. So what does he say to do? Here's the answer. Verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath that they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. In other words, he's saying very simply this. Here's how you can tell if you're really in faith. You've entered into your promised land. You've come to that place of rest. You've come to that place of accepting the plan and the purpose of God, the will of God for your life, for your body, for your healing. You've come to accept that place, and now you're not trying to compare yourself against the problem. You're not looking to see it. Do I have enough faith for this problem? The doctor said there's nothing more he can do, but I'm not sure, Pastor Mike, if I've got enough faith. Enough faith is never the issue, ever. Yet that's where the devil wants to keep you. Why? Because he's trying to get you looking at something that he wants to convince you that you don't have. Because how can you measure faith? If the devil speaks in your ear and says you don't have enough faith, how can you re- how can you respond to that? Oh, no, I've got my faith a meter out, and it shows that I'm tanked up today. There's no way that you can you can have that conversation. 
But God never talks about faith from an amount standpoint. Well, with one exception. The one exception he uses is he said faith in the smallest form. Faith like a grain of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds. At least known to Israel at that time. I don't know about present day. But if you've got faith as a grain of mustard seed and plant it and hold fast to it, it'll grow into the biggest tree in town. That's the only time faith is ever used as an amount. And it talks about faith in the smallest amount. Because the issue is not how big your faith is. The issue is how strong your faith is. And strength of faith is a choice. Not a natural consequence of anything. It's a choice. Just like their evil heart of unbelief. Israel's evil heart of unbelief when they came to the promised land was a choice. Caleb and Joshua's strong faith in God's ability to see them through was a choice. Same circumstances, same point of view, same perspective. Only Caleb and Joshua said, no, we choose to accept what God said is greater than any problem we could face. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. You know, one thing that um, um, I'll refer you to this, it's just a couple of pages over in in, uh, James chapter 1. Here's a verse of Scripture that not too many Christians that I know of seem to act on. We know it's there. Everybody knows it's there. But not too many people act on this. James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptation means test, trial, and affliction. How many times do we thank God for the trouble we're in? Now, there's a fine line there, and I realize that. Because if God doesn't cause the problem, you can't thank him for giving you the problem because he didn't give it to you. Well, then what are we supposed to do, Pastor Mike? Are we supposed to thank God for the trouble the devil stirred up? Well, in one sense, yeah. Why? Why would we do that? Because if we believe God is bigger than every problem, then we can count it all joy. We can be joyful and rejoice in every situation that the devil has brought against us, knowing that it's an opportunity to prove God's word true. Knowing that it's an opportunity to have a good report, to have the same kind of strength of faith that Caleb and Joshua did in the Old Testament, even though they were tremendously outnumbered, millions to one. To say, oh, Father, thank you for the opportunity to prove your word true in this case. How many people do that? Now, if the Holy Ghost is telling us that we which have believed do enter into rest and the Holy Ghost is telling us that we're supposed to count it all joy when we fall into these different temptations and tests and trials and problems, then don't you think those must be related? Same Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is God, so he can't be making a mistake. So on one hand, where he says, we which have believed do enter into rest, and then he says, here's what you do when you face trouble because you believe God, and that is you count it all joy, you rejoice in the middle of your problem, then shouldn't rejoicing have something to do with rest, entering into rest? In other words, your promised land is not the physical attainment of healing. Your promised land is the condition of faith that brings you into the healing. Should I say that again? Okay, I've never thought of that before. I'll have to see if I can get that back. (laughs) Your promised land, the Holy Ghost does that to me all the time. A lot of times I'll go back and think, wait, what did I say? Which shows me who's doing it. If I was smart, then it'd be one thing, but (laughs) not so much. Okay, your promised land is not the physical attainment of healing. See, so many times people think that I've got it when the doctor says I'm well. That's not your promised land. 
Your promised land is the condition of faith, the opportunity to believe God's word that brings you into the physical attainment of healing. Your rest, the rest that you enter into, is the place, the condition, the the uh, whatever word, what other word would there be to use? The the uh, the condition. I don't know whatever other word to use. The condition of faith. In other words, God is pleased with your faith more than he is your physical condition. Why? Because your faith will change your physical condition. That's your promised land. Your promised land is the condition of faith that brings about your physical healing. And the Holy Ghost is telling us that the way to enter into that rest, at least one way to enter into that rest, is to count it all joy. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Yeah, but I don't like those diverse temptations. That's why you have to count it joy. That's why you have to stop and recognize and say, wait a minute, the Holy Ghost told me to do something when I get in trouble. What did he tell me what to do? I know what I want to do. I want to cry. I want to get somebody on the phone that can bail me out. I want to get somebody that can take care of this problem for me. But what did the Holy Ghost tell me to do? Folks, I'm not making a joke. Israel cried. Israel heard the report about the promised land. There's giants in that land. They've got big cities and those cities have high walls around them. And they cried. I'm not going to throw off on them because they did that because I've wanted to do that a lot of times too when I looked at my problems. Haven't you? Sure. I found this in dealing with people and trying to get them healed. You can't get them healed unless you can get them to stop crying. I've had so many people bless their hearts. I'm not trying to make fun because it, because it's a serious issue. But I've had so many people come to me after a service and say, Pastor Mike, the doctor said this. Would you pray for me? Not while you're crying. You're just hard. No, I'm not hard. I'm trying to get you the answer. You can't be in faith and cry at the same time. So if you're going to cry, get your cry done. Then when you get your cry done with, then come talk to me and then we'll believe God. A lot of people you can't get healed. Brother Hagin said this and I didn't understand what he was talking about for years and years. He said, a lot of people you can't get healed because they've got that whine in their voice. I found that some people want to tell you about their situation just because they want to know how big the problem is for them. They don't really want anything from God. They just want to tell you how big the problem is. And every time they do, I'll say, well, okay, you've given me your report. Thank you very much. Well, aren't you going to pray? Well, of course not. You don't want anything from God. If God healed you, you'd lose your story. I'm not like that with everybody, but every now and then, you know. (laughs) Count it all joy. Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. If God's word is true, we don't have anything to cry about. I didn't say you won't feel like crying. Everybody does. But if God's word is true, you don't have anything to cry about. Because if God's word is true, your promised land has already assured you of the answer to whatever it is that you feel like crying over. So we which I believe do enter into rest. Part of that rest is counting it all joy. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. The Bible says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. The Bible talks about Romans chapter 4, Abraham, speaking of Abraham being the father of faith. Notice it says here in um, 
uh, we'll start reading in verse 18 of Romans 4, talking about Abraham, who against hope believed in hope. Now, you remember the story was that God promised him a child, and he got to be uh, almost 100 years old, and God appears to him and, and says, Abraham, uh, you remember I promised you a child? And Abraham says, oh, it's too late for that. I'm too old. Problem's too big now. When you first appeared to me at 75, that was okay, but I'm too old now. But God had to talk him into it. God had to remind him, wait a minute, is anything too hard for, for me? I promised you. You think your age really makes a difference? And so Abraham changed his thinking. And so where he had lost hope from God's original promise, now he regained hope because God had reminded him of his promise. In other words, the same thing that he had hope in to begin with, which was God's word, God's promise, he lost that hope because he started looking at the circumstance. And his circumstance was the age of his body. But he stopped looking at the age of his body and started looking again to what God said and regained his hope. There's a lesson there for looking at your, what the word says about your healing instead of looking at the condition of your flesh. You keep looking at what your body is doing and what the doctor says about your body, you can lose hope. But you keep your eyes instead on what the promise of God is to you, what your promised land is concerning healing, and that hope can be revived. So, who against hope, literally without natural hope, believed in hope. In other words, he believed God to attain hope. Now, what's he believing, or what's the hope that he has? The hope that he has is that he might become the father of many nations. Well, what is he believing to regain that hope? He believed according to that which was spoken. He believed according to that which was spoken so that he could become the father of nations. You have to believe what was spoken to you about healing so that you could become healed. Same thing, different area, but same exact principle of faith. Faith's always the same in every area. And being not weak in faith, being not is a choice. This could easily be translated in choosing not to be weak in faith. It's a choice. It's a determination. It was an action on his part. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. Well, if you want to pull the knots out of that verse, then you'll see what weak faith is. And being weak in faith, he considered his own body now dead. So if you want to be weak in faith, just consider your body. Just keep looking at your body. Let your body tell you how things are going. Let your body tell you whether or not you're getting any better. Let your body, which represents your circumstances, but this being healing school fits perfectly. Just let your body tell you how things are going. That's what weak faith does. Weak faith has heard the word, but it keeps looking at his body, looking at the physical circumstance. But Abraham was not weak in faith. So being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't, because he wasn't weak in faith, he didn't consider his body to be the final word on any subject. He didn't consider the condition of Sarah's body to be the final word on any subject, even though both of them were past childbearing years and functions. And I don't know how to be any other... Uh, I don't know how to say it any any more G-rated than that. Neither one of their bodies are performing in a sexual manner, in a reproductive, sexually reproductive manner. So he's got a lot of things not to consider, doesn't he? If he's going to be, if he's going to not be weak in faith or be strong in faith, then he's got a lot of things about his flesh and Sarah's flesh that he's not going to be able to consider. It may be the same for you. There may be a lot of things about your flesh that you just can't consider. You may not be able to consider what the doctor says somebody in your condition does. 
You may not be able to consider what the doctor says that somebody, uh, how the, the particular disease or sickness that you have per, usually progresses. You may not be able to consider what the doctor says that somebody in your condition has never done. Could be any number of things. But it's still the same principle. If you're going to not be weak in faith, if you're going to choose and determine to not be weak in faith, then that means you're not going to be able to consider your body. That means you're not going to be able to consider the positive aspects of what your body says. You're not going to be able to consider the negative aspects of what your body says. You're not going to be able to consider what the doctor says about you and your condition. There's got to be something that you look to and consider. Now, the word consider means to observe closely. It doesn't say that Abraham denied that his body was dead. It doesn't say that Abraham looked at his body and said, this is really isn't going on. A lot of people think they're in faith when they're denying the circumstances and denying the reality of their situation. Faith never says, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. Faith says, by his stripes, I'm healed. By his stripes, I'm healed. So certainly Abraham knew that. Certainly you're going to have to be aware of what your body's doing. Certainly you're going to have to be aware of what the doctor says. Certainly you're going to have to be aware of these things, but you don't observe it closely as if it's the final word on the subject. Well, what is then? Well, notice what he did. Tells us what he didn't do. Now let's see what he did. Verse 20, it says, He staggered not at the, at the promise of God through unbelief. The American Standard Version on this verse is really good. It says, But looking at the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. If he's not looking at his body, what is he looking at? He's looking at the promise of God. How is he able to not consider his body now dead or Sarah's body now dead? How are you not going to be able to consider what the doctors told you about your condition or what uh, your body is telling you, the signals your body is telling you about your condition? How is it that you're going to not be able to consider that or to look away from those things that are very real, that are factual circumstances that you're dealing with? How are you going to be able to look away from that? You're going to have to have something to look to. Abraham looked into the promise of God. Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. You want to know how not to stagger? You want to know how not to waver in faith? Keep looking at the word. Keep looking at the word. So what did he do? But being strong in faith. Notice what made him strong in faith. The thing that made him strong in faith was determination that he's not going to look at his body But instead, he's going to look at the promise of God. But being strong in faith, giving glory to God. Notice the first thing that the Bible says about Abraham's strong faith. It says that he gave glory to God. Now, isn't that the same as counting in all joy? But was strong in faith, giving glory to God. In other words, he's thanking God for the answer before he sees the answer. Well, what kind of nutcase does that? Somebody in faith. Somebody that has entered into rest. Because if it's done, if the Bible is true, if God's promise is true, and it's really done, and that's our promised land, and the Bible says that God has already done it for us through Jesus and through his sacrifice, nothing else left to be done, he did it all, then all we have to do is lean back and say, you did it, Lord. We give you glory. We count it all joy. That's how we can say with confidence. David said in, uh, what is it, Psalm 34, about verse 2, he said, my soul will make his boast in the Lord. My soul will make his boast in the Lord. David talked a lot about boasting in the Lord. He talked a lot in the Old Testament about not being ashamed. 
Lord, I put my trust in you. Let me not be ashamed before my enemies. He talked a lot about that over and over and over again. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Why? Well, if you don't believe God's word is true, you don't have anything to boast about. But if, on the other hand, you believe God's word is more true than the circumstances you're facing, then you don't hold back one little bit. You're able to give glory to God and count it all joy and say, Thank you, Father, for this opportunity for everybody to see your word come to pass on my behalf. David talked a lot about God doing things for him so that everybody else would see his enemies and others would see God's on my side, not theirs. I don't suggest we get in an adversarial situation with anybody but the devil. But I don't mind telling you, I'm looking forward to some some uh, realization of some things just so I can rub the devil's nose in it. And just so that I can count it all joy today, I'm getting a head start on rubbing his nose in it now. Which is what glorifying God does. It says to the devil, throw everything you want to at me. I trust him. I'm going to turn back to, uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we're out of time, so I'll try to go through this real quickly. But I, 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 I don't know. I just have an impression that this would be a good place to add this in. Because the Lord is, uh, I told you that David said a lot about his enemies being ashamed. And, and, or I'm sorry. Well, some places he talked about his enemies being ashamed for coming out against him. But other places he talked about trusting in God and not, let me not be ashamed before my enemies. The Lord really dealt with me about uh, something. I say dealt with me. It's present tense. He is dealing with me about some things. And I don't know that I've seen everything about it yet. But notice in, uh, in chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, we'll start reading in verse 1. After talking about the hall of fame of faith, it says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Notice there are two things that, you're, that you need to be concerned with. Weights and sins. Lay aside every weight and sin. Now we know what sins are. Sins are the things that cause us to break fellowship with God. And sins are the things that the devil tempts us to. But there are other things in life that will hold you back from running your race. And those things aren't sinful. They're just weights. They're things that distract you. You need to be aware that the devil wants to trip you up any way he can. If he, wants, if he trips, can trip you up with sin, he's happy. But if he can't trip you up with sin, maybe he can just weigh you down with other stuff to keep you from being as effective as you should be. So the Bible tells us to guard against weights and sins. Lay them both aside. How are we going to do that? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And notice the rest of the verse. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. I, I've, I've known that verse was there. I could have quoted that verse. But something about despising the shame just jumped out at me the other day when I was praying. Despising the shame. Despising the shame. Despising the shame. You know how many times the Bible says, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. Over and over again. The one you're probably the most familiar with is in Romans chapter 10. Where it talks about the principle of faith for salvation. It says in Romans 10.10. 10, for with uh, the heart 
Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 11 says, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That word ashamed means to flee from as in fear. In other words, ashamed in the Bible sense means you're afraid of something and have to run away. Whosoever believeth in him shall never have to run away because they're afraid. That's an implication that God's power is always going to keep you from being afraid of whatever it is that rises up against you. That doesn't mean you won't have obstacles. It won't mean you don't have problems. But back to Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. The cross was a place of defeat. That's why I don't like crosses around people. I mean, I I said that wrong. I don't mean I don't like crosses around people. I don't care what people do. But people all the time say, well, you don't have any crosses in here. I don't want any cross in here. The cross was a place of defeat. It was a place where Jesus shed his blood. It's a place that turned into victory. But Jesus despised the cross. Well, if Jesus didn't think much of the cross, why should I? Now, don't get me wrong. I think a lot about the resurrection. But the cross was a place of defeat, and Jesus wanted no part of it. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, saying, Lord, if there's any other way, let's do it another way. But if this is the only way possible, then I'm in. Why was he recalling from the cross? Because he despised the shame. Jesus was the Son of God. He was God manifest in the flesh. And he's got to hang up on a cross as a, as a laughing stock for everybody. He's got to humble himself, allow himself to be stripped naked, beaten, and then hang up there with this mocking crown of thorns. Jesus wanted no part of that. None whatsoever. Now turn back with me to Isaiah 50. Let me show you where Isaiah speaks of the shame that Jesus was recalling from and how he handled it. Isaiah 50. A friend of mine showed me this the other day. I'd never seen it. I'd read these verses of Scripture. I had, um, when I, I looked them up, I, uh, when they were talking to me about it, I got out my iPad and looked at it on my iPad. And, and, of course, I don't mark my iPad up. I don't know if there's any way to do, to do that. But when I got my Bible out and looked, I had marked and underlined some of these Scriptures. But I, I don't remember ever having seen them. I don't remember. I certainly didn't commit them to memory. Isaiah is speaking, and he says... Uh, Oh, well, let's just start in about verse 4. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. And I, I like that. I want that. I had that underlined. I want that to be God's relationship with me, don't you? The Lord God has opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Now he starts speaking prophetically about Jesus. He says, I gave my back to the smiters. And my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. That's talking about Jesus. Part of the punishment that he endured going to the cross. Four. Here's why he went through the cross and all the punishment associated with it. Even though he despised the shame. Four. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. The word confounded means to be put to shame. It doesn't mean to be confused. It means to be put to shame. Therefore... For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be put to shame. Therefore 
have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Here's Jesus' attitude toward the devil, toward his adversary, and the reason that he was willing to endure the cross, because he knew God was going to be his helper. Therefore, he yielded himself up, knowing that he was not going to be put to shame. He would endure some shame, but he knew he'd come out on top. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Folks, I don't know what this means to you, but it means a lot to me. It means that I can go through whatever situation the enemy tries to throw against me. It means I can count it all joy when I fall into whatever temptation or test or trial or adversity or hard place or trouble. It means that I can rest in him, believing for him to bring me out on top. Just because of the way it looks today doesn't mean it's always going to be like that. And God's victory is always such that it won't be even remembered how it looks today. Then he talks about being justified by God. Now, this is certainly Jesus speaking prophetically. This is talking about him being born again from the dead, raised again from the dead, or uh, born again, first begotten from the dead, and then raised again. But then he says, he is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let him stand together or let us stand together. In other words, he's saying, let my enemy come forward. Meet me face to face. The devil doesn't usually do that, does he? He's usually shooting at you from around the corner. He's usually in the shadows somewhere. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Second time Jesus said that about his father. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that will condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. You know what he's saying? He's saying these people that are pulling the, the whiskers off my face. These people that are spitting in me, they're going to melt away like dust. Their bodies will just be destroyed, but not me. God will redeem me. Who is among you? Now Isaiah is talking not, about, not prophetically about the Lord. Now he's talking about because of this, what does it mean to you? Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath not light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. And stay upon his God. Folks, when you understand that it's impossible, and, and really, I would encourage you to meditate on this. I, I, I wish I could say I've got a hold of this, but I'm, I'm working on it. I don't know that anybody ever really gets a hold of this. But it's a, it's a progressive thing, or at least it should be in my opinion. But I want to encourage you to do something. I want you to meditate on certain things that are impossible. The Bible says there that there, certain things are impossible. For example, it's impossible for God to lie. You know what else is impossible? That doesn't use this word, doesn't use the word impossible associated with it, but you'll know this as soon as I say it. It's impossible for God not to hear your prayer. Now, of course, there are conditions. We have to pray in the name of Jesus. We have to pray according to the word. But it's impossible for God not to hear, your, hear and answer your prayer. This is something Wigglesworth had. And I, I'm amazed every time I read after Wigglesworth. Wigglesworth used to challenge audiences. He'd get in, in convention centers or old-time assembly halls, whatever they were called back in his day. And he would challenge his audiences. He would look at somebody that was crippled or something like that, and he'd say, you see this guy over here? 
What should we do? Should we heal him now or should I preach first and heal him later? Man, I love that guy. Wish I could have seen him. Well, no, I, I don't wish I was old enough to have been able to see him. But you know what I mean. And then he'd challenge his audiences like this. He'd say, he'd bring somebody up and it looked like a hard case. And he'd say, you could just feel the, the crowd. Everybody's just going, oh, what's he going to do? This guy doesn't even have legs or something like that. Something weird like that. And you could just feel the whole crowd, the whole audience is just going, oh, boy, what's he going to do now? Thinking, without even saying it, but the whole feeling was, even this one's too big for God. And Wigglesworth would challenge people. He'd say, you don't think it's possible for God not to hear and answer this prayer, do you? He's right. He had an understanding that very few people ever get, but he's right. It's impossible for God not to hear and answer your prayer, whatever you're praying based on the word. If you prayed according to your promised land, according to the promises that God has revealed in his word about his will for you through the work of Jesus, it's impossible for him to not hear and answer your prayer. Now, when we realize God's got his side already taken care of, then it becomes just a matter of us laying back, choosing to be strong in faith, saying, Lord, we just rest in you. I see so many people struggling. So many people struggling. I had a a friend that um, uh, was talking to me about... uh, well, how do I how do I share that? I, I don't want to I don't want to bring embarrassment on anybody. Uh, there was a, um, a Raymond graduate guy that uh, had contracted some kind of condition, some kind of life threatening disease, and he was critical. And it was something that everybody was praying about. It's something that everybody was believing God with him and agreeing on together with him. And he knew what the scripture said about his healing and so forth. But it had gotten to the point where if God didn't step in and, and take some action in some way or another, the guy was going to die. And, oh, boy, ever, I mean, he was well-known, and everybody was stepping in trying to help him and encourage him and, and, and this, that, and the other. And, and people were praying. And, and you know how stuff like that happens with people that aren't well-grounded. It just shakes everybody to the core. Why do you think he's not getting his healing? What do you think's going wrong? Do you think there's sin in his life? Is there something holding it back? All this stuff that the devil whispers in your own ear can come through the mouths of other people, too. And, uh, and this, uh, this friend of mine uh, said this. He said that uh, uh, I was praying. I wasn't really praying about this guy or praying about this, uh, this person's situation, but she was well acquainted with him. And she said, all of a sudden, I had a vision of him. She said, I saw him, and it was like he was holding on to a cliff. He had his fingers just, just dug into the edge of a cliff, and he was slipping. Just slipping. And he was struggling. He was trying to hang on, trying to crawl up, trying to get to the top. And she said, and then all of a sudden the vision changed and I'm not looking from above to where his hands are gripping on the cliff. She said it pulled back and I saw the whole picture and he's about that far off the ground. And she said in the prayer or in the the vision, I started saying, just let go, just let go, just let go. But that's not the kind of faith he had. The kind of faith he had was you got to keep saying it. You got to keep saying it. If you say it enough, it'll work. You just got to keep working it. Work it, work it, work it, work it, work. And it became this real, real burdensome thing. Folks, that's not what faith's supposed to be. Jesus didn't minister healing to the sick, saying, oh, we've got to work this thing out. And he said, be healed. Jesus is a perfect example of walking in rest. Walking in faith, resting in God. And what did Jesus say to us? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That means what he's called you to do, walk by faith, is easy. That means 
what he has provided for you and the opportunities to receive your healing and the other things that came along with his sacrifice are light. It's not some hard job. It's a rest. It's a rest. I want you to envision yourself just leaning back. Those of you that are struggling against sickness in your body or whatever the case might be, I want you to just envision yourself just leaning back and falling back into the arms of Jesus. For we which I believe do enter into rest. I'm resting in you, Lord. I don't have to work this thing. I just simply choose to believe your word. And because I choose it, I confess it. I say it with my mouth. And I give you glory for it. That kind of faith always works. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to rest in you. Heaven and earth will pass away, Father, but your word will never fail. That means your word toward us cannot fail. So we choose, Father, to be strong in faith. We choose to look away from the circumstances and how big the problem is and look instead to you and to your promises. We recognize, Father, that you are bigger than any problem that we will ever face. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to prove your word in our lives and in our bodies, in our circumstances. In Jesus' precious name. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Say this after me. I believe God. I believe that Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. And with his stripes, I was healed. I don't believe I'm going to be healed. I believe I was healed. So I lean back into the arms of Jesus. I've entered into rest. The rest of healing. Therefore, I simply glorify God. Thank you, Father, that I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to walk by faith, to prove out your word, and to see it realized in my body. I rest in you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, let's all stand together, see if there's anything else the Lord wants us to do before we go. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Ah, I'm clear in my spirit. I guess we're good. Thank you for being with us. God bless you. Have a great week.